1: Welcome to another episode of the Michelle Tafoya podcast. Love my guest today, Gerard Baker. He has granted me permission to call him Jerry Baker of the Wall Street Journal has a new book out called American Breakdown. Let me read you one sentence. It's no accident that if you ask the leaders of the institutions that have seen the greatest declines in trust over the last 50 years, government, media, universities, big business, some version of Trump's to blame is probably the answer they would give to the question of why trust has declined. It's not their fault. It's all the fault of some malevolent, lying narcissist, some serpent like creature who corrupted America's Garden of Eden. He writes brilliantly. He joins us next.
0: Welcome to the Michelle Tafoya Podcast.
1: People don't trust me anymore, and it's all their fault. It's a great quote out of the book, American Breakdown, by Jerry Baker, Gerard Baker from the Wall Street Journal. He's our guest coming up. So much of his book is about how trust has been lost in the great institutions of America. And it's it makes you feel very discouraged, but there's a silver lining in the book. He offers solutions. This is a very real issue in America. We don't trust our government. Why? Because they lie to us. We don't trust big business. Why? Because they lie to us. We don't trust the media. Why? Because they make up stories and we don't trust academia. Why? Because they're teaching stuff that is, they're not teaching our kids to read and they're teaching them instead that their identity is the most important thing about them. So there's a lot of mistrust and distrust to go around. And by the way, uh, Jerry Baker defines those two, mistrust versus distrust in his book. It's just such a good read, American Breakdown. He's going to join us next. But what about your skin's breakdown? Um, Do you think your face enjoyed the summer as much as you did when you're out in the sun and the humidity? Here's Ella from Rockford, Illinois. Quote, I have both age and acne spots, and this stuff is actually fading both of them. This serum is worth every penny. So what is she talking about? She's raving about the dark spot corrector from GenuCell, a must-have. After months of record heat and humidity this summer, you've got your sunspots, your brown spots, your discoloration, red splotches. They all can disappear in front of your eyes. No, I'm not kidding. Here's the GenuCell amazing guarantee. Yes, I said guarantee. You'll see results day one. Or your money back. So take advantage of the Genucel most popular package, which now includes the dark spot corrector plus the classic Genucel bags and puffiness treatment and immediate effects all at about 70% off. So you can try the best skincare on the planet and you can do it completely risk-free. Genucel has been in business for over 20 years and they beat the competition in customer loyalty by about 300%. I'm, I'm telling you, it's simple. Go to GenuCell.com slash Michelle. Go there today. Start looking years, maybe even decades younger. Genucel. That's G E N U C E L dot com slash Michelle. Say goodbye to the dark spots, the liver spots, the bags and puffiness under the eyes, crow's feet at genucel dot com slash Michelle. Genucel dot com slash Michelle. You'll see results day one and you'll get compliments everywhere you go. And that's also a guarantee. Genucel dot com slash Michelle com slash M-I-C-H-E-L-E-1-L. Jerry Baker is next about his new book, American Breakdown. Jerry Baker, welcome back to the podcast. So glad to have you. Um, you know, I think you can tell a lot by America about the films that were released in particular eras. And I know that your first visit here to the United States was 1986. And I looked it up and the top films in 86 were Little Shop of Horrors, The Money Pit, Three Amigos with Steve Martin, uh, Milo, Milo and Otis, The Money Pit. A lot of good fun, right? Short Circuit. And mm. then 10 years later, you, you moved here and the top films were James and the Giant Peach, Titanic, uh, yep. The Birdcage, Waiting for Guffman, The Cable Guy, a Twister. A lot of fun stuff with very little political yeah. <laughs> baggage in them. Yeah. I think we see a very different landscape today. Do you agree that that tells us a little something about the, the culture we're in? That's okay. I just dropped something.
2: It's all right. That's all right. Uh, thanks. First of all, Michelle, thanks again for having me yeah. on the podcast. I love your podcast. It's a great pleasure to be here. You do a great job. You know, it's a really interesting observation that, uh, Michelle, and I hadn't actually thought of it in those terms, but I think you're absolutely right. I mean, I think if you, you know, I've actually written a little bit in the past about the way Hollywood in particular has gone from being essentially a kind of, um, you know, a business that's a, a, a cultural activity that kind of fairly reflected, I think, the values of America. Mm-hmm. You go back, whether back in, you know, the forties, the great war movies of the forties or the right. great, you know the great musicals or you know great great dramas of the 1950s and 60s and there was always a there was you know there was an increasingly important political dimension but there was there was never this kind of relentless sense that of 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 america as a deeply flawed corrupt dysfunctional terrible country which i'm afraid is the kind of character of movies that have been made in the last 10 or 15 years and so and it's so it's a very interesting way of thinking about it Michelle you're right back I, as you say i first came to this country in 1986 um, you know, Reagan, it was the sort of, in, we're into the second term of Reagan. The country was doing very well. It was kind of morning in America. There was a sense that, you know, things were on the up and that was reflected, I think, in the culture of the time. And in the 1990s, when I came to move here I moved uh, to Washington in late 1996. It was just the Bill Clinton had just been reelected we were before the Monica Lewinsky trauma that we were all put through before that. But it was also, and I quite often reflect on the 1990s as a time of real sort of the pinnacle of American achievement and success. You know, the Cold War was over. The economy was booming. Inflation was relatively low. We were just the Internet was just taking off. There was this incredible sense that America had, um, you know, had really demonstrated to the world the superiority of its model, the superiority of its values. It had defeated all comers in the 20th century. You know, people talked about the end of history, all of that stuff, which sadly didn't turn out to be true. But I think just, you know, again, and this is the the thrust of my book, uh, Michelle, think about how in just a generation... We've lost that. We've lost. And again, not everybody liked Bill Clinton. I wasn't a big fan of Bill Clinton, certainly not his personal behavior. But you go back and look at where America was in the late 1990s, post-Cold War, winning hot wars in Iraq and um, Kosovo, um, as I say, all of the economic success it was having. And the level of general sense of of cohesion and purpose about the country was extraordinary at the time. And that in a generation has just, just been lost.
1: That is what's so astonishing is how quickly this seems to have happened. And certainly we can point to moments like George Floyd, like the pandemic in recent years that seem to have been opportune times to really get people to sort of put their stakes in the ground and argue about stuff, cultural stuff. But this idea of you know the patriarchy and white supremacy and and, and those kinds of identity politics that have been really starting to crop up seem to be a large part of this. The first chapter of your book really talks about trust Mm. and how much trust has been lost in so many institutions. And as I was reading it, I was thinking to myself, even the things that, you know, the studies now that come out to talk about the loss of trust, can I trust those studies to be telling me the truth? I don't know whom to believe anymore. W- w- what do you think the genesis of this is?
2: Well, I think the the, the main genesis is, unfortunately, people have been lied to for, two, for, for so many years. I mean, that is, you know, this is, I wrote the book about trust and about the collapse of trust based on all the data that we have about how much, you know, public trust in major American institutions has fallen dramatically in the last 30 years. But in a sense, it's not a crisis of trust. It's not that the American people have just suddenly, for no reason, withheld their trust, from institutions like the media, higher education, government, law enforcement, big business, science, technology, all those things that I look at in the book, it's that those institutions have themselves forfeited that trust, Michelle. It's that they have they've, they've told us things that we have had reason to doubt or frankly had reason to s- discover were just not true. And and again whether that's the, the government is responsible for a lot of that. You know, I'm sorry to say, but a lot of what the government told us in the early 2000s uh, about, you know, the war on terror, about uh, the war in Iraq, you know, and I, by the way, let me say immediately, I was a strong supporter of the war in Iraq, but we were told things that weren't true. No wonder people didn't trust, don't trust in what the government says about things that are going on in the world, particularly like Ukraine right now. Again, I'm a supporter of what the administration is doing in Ukraine, but, but so many people have, have, have seen the, the the government essentially tell them untruths over the last 20 years. But the government's lost lost its credibility. The um, media, you, what you and I work in, Michelle, have dramatically lost their credibility. That yes. you know, in, in the 1970s, after Watergate, something like three-quarters of Americans said they generally trusted what they read in news organizations. That number's down below 20% today. And again, understandably, because you know we've seen news organizations pursue these ideological views dressing it up as news when when people can see and thanks to the internet in particular that's one of the big things that's contributed to this they can now test what they read or see on television against what they get where they get alternative sources of information and they can see the bias they can see the way that people are being willfully misled where the organizations are willfully misleading people so you know that's gone we've had the pandemic Trust was, you know, weakened in in the medical profession, in public health during the pandemic. In scientists, we had scientists, you know, telling us on the one hand that you, you know, it was you couldn't go out and protest against lockdowns, or because that was a public health danger. But not only could you go out and protest. You know, over the George Floyd murder, protests against supposed police brutality. But actually, it was necessary to go out and protest. That was an that was an act that was designed that would that actually would improve public health. Well, no wonder people don't trust. No wonder people stop trusting Anthony Fauci and the medical establishment because they were telling us these things that were just you know so obviously not true. So you know, we have over. Again, over this period of 20, 25 years, um, Michelle, again, you just talk, started off talking about the 1990s. We've seen institution after institution essentially fall to what I describe as an elite with values that are completely out of touch, that actually yes. are contrary to American values, historical values, and have tried to turn the country, and basically turn the country against itself. And it's that, for that reason that I think trust has collapsed so dramatically.
1: When we talk about that country turning against itself, and and I see it regularly, and I wonder if people, if this is so intentional, if this started, as some people suggest, back in the 20s with uh, Marxist folks coming into this country and starting these educational, this programming, if you will, or if this is just really what people believe and that they think they can make this place so much better without any real knowledge of what the rest of the world looks like. I wonder what, what they think better actually looks like.
2: Yeah. I I think a few trends have been in place against some of the things you described, Michelle, a few trends have been in place that explain this the way in which these elites have taken over these institutions. You're absolutely right. I think a lot of it does go back, especially in education to a kind of Marxist class Um, Particular, you know, what was interesting about when the Soviet Union collapsed in 1990 um, um, and China was essentially becoming, you know, embracing sort of capitalist ideas, at least in the economy, and actually Mm -hmm. starting to grow. You know, Marxist ideas, Marxist economic ideas were thoroughly discredited. I mean, you know, we'd had a hundred years, as you say, of sort of of, the march of Marxist ideologues through our institutions, through many of our academic institutions. We'd had this sort of tension throughout the Cold War between, you know, was Marxism a better uh, way for the world to work or was capitalism and free and freedom anyway well that, that that was really resolved with the collapse of the Soviet Union and with the you know the, the with the realization in China that they had to embrace free market reforms so what happened so these Marxists then you know I mean they didn't they didn't really want to let go uh, of their ideologies they changed it from the economic field to the cultural field and essentially saying okay well you know maybe the idea that you know the world is made up of a an economic structure whereby capitalists are exploiting workers. Maybe, okay, that idea wasn't so good, but we've got an alternative model for you, which is that, which is based on race and gender and this idea of, you know, critical theory, this, 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 this fundamental idea that, that, that society Operates with these power structures, um, exercised, you know, by white male patriarchy in particular. And everybody else, you know, in this sort of intersectional theory is somehow the victims of that oppression. So that, so the sort of Marxism lived on. Another factor, um, and in fact, Marxism lived on and sort of reinvented itself in the kind of post Cold War period and became so, you know, so widely believed. A second factor, I think, really played a big role in the, in the, in the dilution or the collapse of trust in American institutions driven by these elites pursuing their own objectives was globalization. You know, this became the mantra after the collapse of the Berlin Wall that the world was coming together. It was, you know, that we'd had periods like this in the the past in the world, but this was seen much more intense. As I say, you know, the the old Cold War barriers had broken down. China was emerging into the world economy. Um, You know, you had this kind of Davos man phenomenon of people, you know, going to, you know, Davos every year, the famous World Economic Forum. And talking about the virtues of an integrated world. And what they meant by that was essentially an integrated world that would work for big business. Um, you know, and that would be, you know, borderless sort of trade, borderless movements of labor, meaning immigration, unlimited immigration. This became a dominant sort of theory, almost a theology among the kind of ruling classes on both sides of the political spectrum. It's really important to say that. You know, d- Democrats. Embraced globalization uh, as enthusiastically as Republicans had previously done, and Republicans embraced it too. And what that ignored was the damage that globalization did to communities here at home, whether it was the loss of jobs, whether it was the the impact of immigration, uh, whether it was the sort of cultural decline that was represented by all of that. And what and what the way that the the form that that commitment to globalization also then took was the idea that the nation states was somehow you know invalid or somehow illegitimate and that we had no right to keep people out we had no right to assert our national values because we were all part of one great global community uh, where we would all just you know we'd all we'd all live happily ever after and so the and so the and, and American values Are so distinctively American and American, except, you know, America was the country that was founded as an ideal, a country where people came here, you know, to, 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 to enjoy their freedom, to enjoy the economic opportunities that they could have, that this, these elites became actually hostile to that very idea. Because no, 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 American idea, because we now believe in this globally connected world, American values are no better than European values or even Chinese values or country or values of those people who are in, in the Middle East. And I think this elite, which took control then of the media, took control of our universities, took control of much of our permanent government, took control of big business, these, these ideas, you know, essentially transformed the, 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 the people who can, the, the institutions that these people controlled into these agents of values that were just not American fundamentally. And, and that so I think it's those, those two of the things I identify most in the book as having contributed to this, trend of this extraordinary rapid seizure by the major uh, seizure of the major institutions by these elites and why they've pushed those institutions away from the values that actually most Americans have long held and actually the values that have genuinely made America great
1: it is stunning to me how we can look at the world and suggest that all countries share the same ideals and we're all equal. And, you know, there is not a such thing as American exceptionalism, which I think Barack Obama intimated in some comments of his during his presidency, yeah. when you see that other countries and, and China foremost among them has a, an abysmal record of human rights. We continue to do our manufacturing there. We continue to rely on them for, for production of, of stuff that is regularly sold here When at any time, I mean, they are so hostile to America, they could say, ah, you know what? Maybe we'll just unleash a virus. I'm just suggesting that. Or maybe we'll stop exporting what it is that you need in this kind of Cold War way. Now, we've got China, Russia, North Korea and Iran uh, forming this, what are some people are calling this new axis of evil. (laughs) I, how badly did we underestimate China's power in in this whole sort of hierarchy of <laughs> terrible stuff?
2: The embrace of China was, um, was, was 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 which which characterized again both political parties um, after the after the end of the Cold War. Uh, characterized the way big business went about relations with China was a mistake. Um, it wasn't necessarily a mistake in terms of its. In terms of its economic opportunities, China's a growing economy, rapidly growing economy. It was a good thing that China was. Liberalizing its economy, that it was growing markets, that was a good thing there were opportunities. you know many people um, benefit from look at look at our iPhones uh, Michelle right. most of our iPhones are made in China. they're you know great devices which we all love. So there's definitely economic benefits from from this relationship. The problem uh, Michelle, was the way in which it was done and in particular, the assumptions which I would say at best were naive and at worst were positively treasonous about what the United States could achieve by this engagement. The idea that so many people had, presidents from Bill Clinton through George W. Bush and Barack Obama, based their engagement with China on the idea that, oh, China's gonna be like us. China's gonna be, you know, the more we engage with them, China's gonna become a democracy, and that's the surest way to ensure that we don't have conflict with China if we're all democratic, we're all basically following the same values. That was an incredibly naive thing to think and believe. Again, you might have been forgiven for thinking it. I think, you know, this idea emerged with the collapse of the Soviet Union. And the Soviet Union practiced communism for 70 years. Uh, it had failed, you know, Gorbachev had introduced, you know, perestroika and glasnost, um, you know, a bit of opening of of, of society and economic restructuring. Um, that had failed completely. The idea was that China was now embracing economic liberalism, it was economic, embracing economic markets, and that inevitably that too, that would either collapse, um, or it would have to involve the opening of society too. Of dem- you know, China would become more democratic. That was the assumption. It was just wrong. And you know, it it was it was clearly wrong from quite an early stage. We, you know, admitted China to the WTO at the end of the 1990s. China was going to do its own thing. It was, yeah, it was liberalizing its economy, but it was also playing by its own rules. I mean, it was, you know, stealing our stealing our uh, intellectual property. Right. It, it was demanding companies transfer their technology into China before, you know, if they were to do business there. It was treating, you know, foreign companies, U.S. companies very unevenly in terms of the way um, they were allowed to operate there and kind of the regulations they were subject to. But we just said, OK, that's fine. We're just going to let let them go on doing that. Um, and at the same time, of course, we you know, all of this was 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 helping China develop militarily and politically and become an incredibly powerful rival to the united states so yeah we you know in the pursuit of what was econ- seen as economic advantage we made we made terrible mistakes in the way that we allowed china basically to to to, to fleece us hmm. repeatedly hmm. um and I, as you know which i'm not the biggest fan of donald trump i think a lot of what donald trump says and does uh is not particularly desirable, but why? We'll give him credit for this when he came in in 2017 as president. He said, that's going to stop. We're going to stop treating China as though, you know, as though they're playing by the rules, as though they really are our friend in all of these things, as though somehow engaging with them is going to be a universal benefit for Americans. We're not. We're going to start imposing our own, you know, re- respecting our own interests, imposing our own demands, and making sure that we're looking out for our own people uh, in this relationship with China. That was very important. And actually, I give some credit to the Biden administration for following on in that. But that, yeah, that was a terrible mistake, Michelle, that was made, you know, over a 20-year period from the 1990s up until uh, the mid-teens.
1: Yeah, and we've, uh, uh, the International Olympic Committee, of course, has allowed two Olympic Games to occur in Beijing since that time. American Breakdown is the name of the book by Jerry Baker, Gerard Baker. Um, Given this discussion on China, and you can say the Biden administration has continued with, with Trump's sort of stance on this, but you know, Biden went to the G20 over the last week and stood there and sort of apologized for China and said, we don't want to hurt China. We want China to be economically strong. We don't. He kind of seemed like an ally to China in that moment. And it looked very weak in my opinion. Yeah. So as as I'm, I'm very public too, that I'm not a huge fan of Donald Trump. I, some of his policies I definitely agree with, but I'm even less of a fan of Joe Biden. And this stance, this weak demeanor that he projected in talking about China. What do you think, what kind of message did that send the rest of the world, do you think?
2: I think you're right. I think it did look weak. I think the problem with this administration, I mean, just said I like some of the things they've done with regard to China. I like, for example, the trying to build alliances against China. This deal with Japan and Korea that they just struck. The deal with Australia and the UK um, for submarine, essentially, kind of uh, to, to build up submarine presence in, in in the Pacific. That's good, and they've done they've done good things there. The problem, though, uh, Michelle, and you hit the nail on the head here with this weekend's G twenty meeting, is the mixed signals that they're sending. So on the one hand. You know, they say, um, you know, we're going to stand up. We're going to defend Taiwan. Uh, China's not going to be allowed to have its way. We're going to, you know, we're, we're taking, we we regard them as a strategic rival. You know, we're building up our defenses. We're building up our capabilities. We're building up these alliances. And on the other hand, you have Biden going there and saying things like that. You know, we don't see confrontation. We don't see containment of China. Or he has his various cabinet members. We've had seen a succession of cabinet members go there in the last few months saying, you know, we want a positive relationship with China. We want a warm relationship. We want a good um, economic we want economic collaboration with China. The problem with that is the Chinese aren't stupid. They see this. I think they look at the United States. They look at the divisions in the United States um, and they look at this president in particular. And I'm sorry to say, you know, a president who is you know, obviously very advanced in age and clearly with diminished capabilities. And they think there are opportunities, there are weaknesses there. Americans don't, you know, they talk about, you know, defending Taiwan, they talk about standing up for freedom, but actually, you know, we just basically took over Hong Kong China, I mean, we, the Chinese, just took over Hong Kong, having made all these promises that Hong Kong would be free. Nobody, nobody lifted a finger to stop us. You have the Biden administration coming and telling us that they want a good relationship with us. They see this and they think, you know what, they're not serious about really standing up against us. They're really not. They don't have the political will to do it. They don't have a president who really has the sort of political strength to do it. And they don't in the end you know, have the will and the resolve as a nation to do it. So we're going to carry on doing what we want to do. The administration has to send clearer signals about its its refusal to accept what China is doing in 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 you know in two countries that, that matter enormously to us, to our allies in the region, we have to take a stand. And, and unfortunately, the Biden administration too often, you know, one day it will take seem to be taking a stand. And the next day it will seem to be saying, actually, you know what, we really want a good relationship with China. We don't want any confrontation. And the Chinese just see weakness.
1: You know, just before a couple hours before you and I sat down to record this podcast, Speaker of the House Mike McCarthy announced that uh, uh, the next Logical step in this whole investigation into Hunter Biden and maybe potentially President Joe Biden's interactions with international monetary stuff. (laughs) I'm trying to put this in simple terms, Uh, is to do an impeachment inquiry. And again, this is different from an impeachment, and people need to understand that, that the inquiry simply allows Congress access to more in-depth, really gives them the, the peak of their powers to, to look at the information that's out there. Um, is it fair to question? I, I It's ridiculous that I just said, is it fair to question? Uh, but this is where we are in America, like you're not allowed to question. But is it logical to question Joe Biden's stance on China when his son whom he's very proud of, seems to have benefited monetarily a great deal from a relationship with China. Is it is it possible the president is compromised?
2: Those are questions that are perfectly reasonable to ask and that an investigation presumably can dig into. Look, I I, I mean, I find it implausible, but, you know, lots of implausible things have happened. So I don't say that out of any great authority, but I find it implausible that Joe Biden or any president of the United States would literally, you know, subordinate. The, the national security of the United States against the greatest strategic rival, the greatest strategic threat the United States has faced since the Cold War, possibly the greatest strategic threat the United States has faced to itself and its national security in its history, and which is what China possibly, very possibly represents. I find it just implausible that Joe Biden would would subject that priority, that objective to the possibility that his son may have made Five, ten, now many millions of dollars, you know, here and there. The problem, but so I find that. So it's a, I, that's not to say I'm, I'm, a, I'm. I think it's inconceivable, but I think it, and it's reasonable to investigate it. But the bigger problem, uh, Michelle, and here's where I think is why investigations really are warranted. Is it, it's just. I mean, it, it seems to me pretty obvious now from what we know, and we probably don't know the half of it yet. There's a lot more. I suspect we're going to learn that. You know, Joe Biden, at minimum, knew what his son was doing. I mean, you know, and by the way, I'll tell you this. And um, I was a reporter, actually, when I was an editor a journal editor a few years ago went during the during the Obama administration the latter the, the second term of, of Barack Obama I, had, I remember talking to senior officials in the State Department who said to me Hunter Biden's a real concern you know he's constantly going around the world selling selling himself you know and you know we don't know if he's actually selling access to his father at least they said that to me but he's certainly selling his name and he's certainly making money out, out you know with foreign governments and foreign companies on the basis of that they knew that back in 2013 14, 15, uh, uh, 16, Michelle, in the second Obama term. The idea that, that Joe Biden didn't know anything about it is absolutely absurd. Yeah. First yeah. of all, we're now seeing more and more evidence that he was involved in some way. He may have, you know, again, we'll have to see what the reality is, but there's plenty of persuasive evidence that he was involved in some of these discussions. He might have been on the phone, you know, called in on the phone by Hunter to sort of, you know, for Hunter to make his case. But secondly, it just defies belief that the vice president of the United States. That his son is going around the world raising money on the base of his name. And the vice president knows nothing about it, particularly <laughs> senior members of the administration were expressing concerns about it. And I'll say one other thing too, um, Michelle. This is more than just the son doing stuff and the, fun, you know, the troubled son. We've heard all about that. Obviously, and he clearly is a troubled, troubled man, with all kinds of flaws. Um, but it's more than, it's more than just the son because in the end, you know, they're They're kind of inseparable. I mean, you know, we we all know this. I've I've got kids, you know, if my kids are going out and raising huge amounts of money, um, you know, from various... I hope they're not. I don't think they are. Sadly, I I wish they were raising more money, but they're not. But if they were going out raising huge amounts of money, especially from, from questionable sources it would make me better off but i mean it would just make me better off and actually you know there isn't there isn't a sort of rigid separation between in in any family between the son and the father or the daughter and the father and the daughter and the mother or whatever family you know the family would be benefiting from that especially hunter with all of his problems that he was having and the Challenges that he was posing to his father, the fact that he was being given huge amounts of money, essentially, as far as we can tell, to do basically nothing, was enormously beneficial to Joe Biden. There's no, there's no, there's no point in pretending otherwise. So, so the corruption question is a real one. You, I don't think you have to demonstrate at all that Joe Biden was. The big guys you know some of those emails famously said or was directly involved in you know siphoning off whatever millions there were you might that might be the case i don 't know i don 't think you have to prove that to demonstrate that the way he behaved in tolerating his son 's you know solicitation of these large amounts of money around the world was unacceptable for a, for a senior member of. The, one of the, 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 you know, the, the second-ranking um, uh, official in the in the administration at the time. It's just, that is that is unacceptable behaviour. That would be unacceptable in a corporation, Michelle. Most, you know, corporations have rules, ethics rules about family members going out and using connections that they have within the company to go and, you know, raise money for themselves. And it's absolutely unacceptable in the federal in the federal government in Washington. So, yeah, I think the stench of corruption is real. I think the need for an investigation uh, is a powerful one.
1: Yeah. American Breakdown is the book. It is a fantastic read. I can't recommend it enough. I I also think it's inconceivable, by the way, for Joe Biden has this habit of saying, I never talked to my son about this, or I never knew about this, or I never making it this extreme denial of knowing anything about his son. Yet he's around his son all the time. I mean, it's just so it's, it's consistent with Joe Biden and his Inability to tell the truth all the time and so often actually lie. And I hate using that word, but I think it's appropriate in this case because clearly he has said so many things that turned out to be false. He has plagiarized. We know all of this in looking back at Joe Biden.
2: we're speaking on the day after the 9/11. Yes, he was at it again yesterday, saying that he was in New York the day after 9/11. Nobody was, you know, President Bush didn't get to New York until three days after that. Exactly, it, it was too toxic. These things, yeah, absolutely. There's there's no credibility there.
1: No, there's no none, and that's why when we look back on all of these statements and these these powerful denials you have to question every single one of them. So I, I it's, it's like you've said, there is mistrust and distrust and you go and, and explain the difference of those in your book, the terminology of between those two things. But at this point I feel distrust for you, this president <laughs>
2: you know, i mean just not, I, I totally i totally agree every time i'm sorry to say this again as somebody you know part of part of the book is about how do we rebuild trust and i think yeah. it's really important we do but every time you have a president who opens his mouth and says something that people know is not true now whether you that's outright lying which may a lot of it may be whether it's senility on his part whether it's dementia you know all of these things but one way or another he's telling us things that we know are not true one of the things i find fascinating, Michelle, is this attempt by much of the media to kind of cover for Joe Biden's, you know, misstatements, gaffes, whatever you want. It's funny that, that you know, there was another piece in the New York Times today, actually, just on Tuesday about um, how, in fact, you know, Biden had an incredibly successful visit G20, he lots of great meetings, everything went really well. And then he had this rather stumbling press conference, which went okay, but he had a couple of things and it had to be cut short. But, the, the, you know, the story is, the real Joe Biden is incredibly successful and focused and capable. And they're asking people to look what we see every time Joe Biden, you know, gets on a bike or tries to walk across a stage or opens his mouth, which is not when it's not absolutely scripted for him. The American people the world can see this man is stumbling very, very badly, whether that's age or whatever else. He is stumbling very badly. They're asking us to believe that somehow that only happens when he's speaking in public, when he's performing in public. Oh, the rest of the time, you know, he's laser focused and achieving everything. You know, there's nonsense that we hear from Corinne Jean-Pierre that he, you know, yeah. he works harder, you know he, you know, he wears his staff out with his yeah. energy. They that's can't fun. keep up with him. That's why people don't trust government, because they know they know that that is nonsense. And and also, it's an unnecessary lie. You don't have to say we all know the man is 81 years old and there's an old man. You don't have to say as a 40 year old press secretary. Wow, he's got more energy than I have, because that instantly makes you incredible. You just say, you know. He's for, you know, he's, he's, he's in charge. He does a good job. He focuses on what he needs to focus on. He makes right. all the key decisions, but instead they have to embellish it with this sort of rubbish.
1: It's and exactly is right. Why
2: people don't trust them.
1: All right. And, and it, it it's like he embellished all his corn pop stories and all the others. I mean, this isn't just within the last several years. This goes back decades with Joe Biden of uh, mistruths and misrepresentations of his life. And it's, Hopefully. it's just, it's embarrassing. And I, uh, It's so frustrating to me, too. And quite frankly, I'm a little scared by it because the state of the nation right now is so bad. Uh, And and I don't know. Clearly, Joe Biden's not running the country, so I'm not really sure who it is that's making all these decisions that are leading to such disastrous results. I'll give you the final word on that.
2: It's a fair question. And again, it, I'm sorry to keep coming back to my, my book and the title of my book or the theme of my book. But it's, again, it's about trust. It's yeah. no wonder, as you say, not only do they not trust what's being, what they're being told because they know that what they're being told, American people know that what they're being told is false. But they, as you say, we don't know who really is in charge. I mean, how can you trust the government? when you don't really know who's making this, you know, we supposedly live in a democracy, Michelle, where we elect our leaders and we expect our leaders to be accountable to the rest of us. When you have a president who plainly is not, you know, as far as we can see with our own eyes, Is not capable of focusing on most of these important issues. We have a legitimate question, which is who is who is who's making these decisions, and if we don't know that, how on earth do we trust or hold people accountable for what they're doing and saying when we don't really know who is making the key decisions? It's just another example of the way in which people are losing faith in these critical institutions that control the way the country, the direction of the country.
1: American Breakdown is the name of the book. It is a fantastic read. I can't recommend it enough. Jerry Baker, I appreciate your time as always. And thank you so much. All the best with the book. I can't imagine it's not going to be a success because it is so important for the moment. Uh, The the discussion about trust and um, faith in our institutions, it's it's critical. Thank you so much for your time.
2: Michelle, it's a real pleasure. Thank you very much for having me again.
1: Likewise, he is Gerard Baker. We, got, we get to call him Jerry. The book is American Breakdown. Thanks for listening, everyone. Be brave, do good, and we will see you next time.
0: Questions about the president's age often go hand in hand with questions about how you would step in the role, you know, if necessary. Do you feel prepared for that possibility uh, as serving as vice president prepared you for, for that job? Yes. Um, and how would you, you know, describe the, that, that process?
1: Which process? as far
0: as being ready for that. Well, first of all, let's.
1: I'm answering your hypothetical. Mm-hmm. Um, but Joe Biden's going to be fine. Right. So that is not going to come to fruition. But let us also understand that every vice president, every vice president, understands that when they take the oath, that they must be very clear about the responsibility they may have to take over the job of being president. I am no different.